They are riding from what might have been towards what will come to be in a locked shot. Missionaries on bicycles greeting Muslim boys, priming the 80s for the troubled future. Still pedaling out at the end of the lens, circling the teens like ambushed prey, mixed to desert dust, floating in hot breeze, an ominous long sequence, pan and fade, then voices over of different tribal dogma, discussing politics, failed civilian rule, the pull of Christian capital, dwindling grazing land, occurrence of names like Matthew and Paul, a close-up on the cat's eye of a white button pulling back wide to a kaftan, black turban, rifle, parched fields, herd of starving cattle, freeze his livid face, let the credits run, and just when it looks as if it is all over, tracking shots of a mosque, the muezzin stands for the call to prayer, sings over the young interfaith couple, washing off their hands. Hello and welcome to Words That Burn, a podcast about poetry. Each week I read a poem, look at its inner workings and hopefully show you what makes it tick. This week's poem is Shooting Script 1987 by Inua Ellums. Before I begin today, I have a suggestion. Try to find a copy of the poem somewhere so that you can read along. It makes things just that little bit easier. There's a link to a copy of the poem in the description just below this episode. Inua Ellums is a poet very much in demand at the moment. Born in Nigeria in 1984, before moving to London with his family. Shortly after that, they relocated again to Dublin, Ireland. Ellums himself cites this period in Dublin as his most formative years artistically. Following those three years, he moved back to London, where he resides to this day. This ever-changing sense of place has granted Ellums a unique perspective on what it is to have a sense of identity, and more importantly, how we construct that sense of identity as a society. In his own words, I left Nigeria, came to England, lived there for three years, moved to Dublin and lived there for three years and returned. So my identity is sort of a little bit Irish, a little bit Nigerian, a little bit British, a um, little bit Muslim, a little bit Christian, a little bit Libra, a little bit Scorpio. And I was born with a twin sister. So before I was conscious that I existed, one could say I was close to feminine energy. So I do not consider myself in any way, shape or form um, a typical man. Ellums came to understand, firstly, that identity and its constraints are usually the result of some sort of external pressure, some societal standard of belonging. And secondly, this standard is far more harmful than people care to admit. No stranger to the judgment of society and the way in which it others, that is to say, dehumanizes and segregates people, especially people of color. Much of his work challenges the colonial narrative built around other countries by first world societies. This particular poem, Shooting Script 1987, is one of the best warnings I've ever seen around the dangers of attempting to document a group or a culture without fully understanding it first. It is a testament to the way in which an outsider's perspective can do far more harm than good. The title of the poem, Shooting Script 1987, is an immediate reference to this type of danger. A shooting script is a document that lays out the exact footage and order needed by a film crew to complete their shoot. It is a meticulous technical document that borders on tedious. In this case, 
it refers to a documentary film. The crew is attempting to record Nigerian culture. This is my own assumption, as Elms himself is Nigerian. The title is a reference to the fact that many documentaries reduce the entire length and breadth of a culture to a series of narrow shots and perspective. It's a nod to the cold and callous nature in which they document. There is not necessarily an empathetic human view of another society put forward by this kind of filmmaking. From the very title, this poem is an act of post-colonial deconstruction. To briefly touch on exactly what that means, colonialism is the practice of imposing one's authority through culture, meanings, language onto someone else, usually on a national level in some sense. Post-colonialism then is the response, often from those who are imposed upon. The response is a rejection or perhaps deconstruction of that enforced language, custom or perspective. Another quick note before we go any further, I've split the poem into my own sections for analysis, as it's been written in free verse. The first section I've chosen is, they are writing from what might have been towards what will come to be in a locked shot. Missionaries on bicycles greeting Muslim boys, priming the 80s for the troubled future. Still peddling out at the end of the lens, circling the teens like ambushed prey, mixed to desert dust, floating in hot breeze. Those first words, writing from what might have been and what will come to be. Those first words, writing from what might have been towards what will come to be, establishes the notion of a narrative being built, a path being decided. The language used in the next line, that of locked shot, is ominous, indicating that something is going to be fixed, unchangeable in the future. This is a possible reference to the narrative around Islam that will be set in Western media for the next few decades. This might seem a strange statement to make, but the 1980s saw a massive shift in the popular culture landscape, especially from an American point of view. The aesthetics and strawman tactics of the Cold War had become stale, and their presence in a narrative be it a movie, a comic book, or even a toy line, no longer held the menace it once had. As a result, everyone from toy companies to wrestling shows were looking for a new scapegoat, one to unify their country. And so, Islam, but more broadly, Arab culture, became the target. This became especially true of representations of Islam in movies. Dave Sirota documents as much in his book on the 80s. In Hollywood, film scholar Jack Sahin found more than a third of the worst anti-Muslim films of the last century were made in the 1980s alone, and many of them credit the Department of Defense for providing needed equipment, personnel, and technical assistance. The movies of the 80s are especially offensive, he said, pointing out that particularly in action-adventure films for kids, evil Arab became the go-to enemy. Sirota's book implies that not only was this a narrative in fiction, but possibly a government-funded one as well. It is this exact representation, the go-to enemy, that Elms is raging against in this poem. The missionaries he mentions are the film crew attempting their project. The title itself is a mocking one, as these missionaries are about to do a terrible job of showing the world Islam or Africa. They are miserable ambassadors, priming the 80s for their troubled future. 
is a line that hints at the overwhelming wave of Islamophobia that is to come over the next few decades. The Ambush Teens, a reference to the almost predatory nature of such film projects, the attempt to document a culture in a few short stylized shots for nothing more than the pay dirt of a completed job. Ellums then describes the kind of cliched imagery, that of desert dust floating in hot breeze, that plagues films like this, making Arab as well as African culture seem constantly primal and ancient, a serious sin brought on by colonial style narratives. It implies that places like Africa have not moved forward, not changed with the times, not tried to evolve. The language of discourse and film theory dominates the next section of the poem. An ominous long sequence, pan and fade. Then voices over of different tribal dogma, discussing politics, failed civilian rule, the pull of Christian capital, dwindling grazing land, occurrence of names like Matthew and Paul, a close-up on the cat's eye of a white button, pulling back wide to a kaftan, black turban, rifle, parched fields, herd of starving cattle, freeze his livid face, let the credits run. An ominous long sequence, pan and fade, is a well-noted technique for causing tension in film. It tells the audience that manipulation is at play in these shots. Suddenly, a voiceover is mentioned. It discusses many things in a tone of summation, glossing over topics that have carved their way through African history with scars which are still visible today. The different tribal dogma a reference to Africa's tribal divisions, a culture older than any colonialism. The failed civilian rule mentioned is like rubbing salt into a wound, as many African nations were left without leadership when colonial powers like England and France left. How could such nations be expected to simply pick up where their colonizer had left off? Then it talks of how Christian money took advantage of the gap left by colonizers and converted nation after nation through countless mission trips and funding. This huge critique of the voiceover is how Ellums shows just how reductionist Western documentaries and narratives can be, taking monumental issues and reducing them to a snippet in David Attenborough's voice. It's narrow and it's hurtful to both African nations and Islam alike. They are misrepresented by those claiming to tell their story. The focus shifts to imagery once more, as Ellums describes a series of close-ups. A close-up on the cat's eye of a white button, pulling back wide to a kaftan, black turban, rifle, parched fields, herd of starving cattle. These close-ups further reduce both Islam and Africa to little more than a series of glimpses, ones that linger in the mind of the viewer. This reductionist view is always a danger of the imagery put forth in films or documentaries. They may brand themselves into the mind of the viewers, giving them a false sense of the place or people being depicted. Furthermore, such depictions strip away voice and agency, meaning that the culture being depicted has little or no say over how their story is being told. The danger of this is driven home in the final line, freeze his livid face, let the credits run. The final image our audience is left with is that of an angry Muslim, then the credits roll, so that is the image that they leave with. This flash of images and blur of language 
adds a kind of angry energy to the lines, showing just how Ellums feels about this kind of representation. However, the poem is not all anger, and the final section leaves us all with a glimmer of hope. Ellums taking time to show what his own narrative regarding Africa and faith mean to him. And just when it looks as if it's all over, tracking shots of a mosque, the muezzin stands for the call to prayer, sings over the young interfaith couple washing off their hands. There is a resounding positivity in the lines about the mosque and the call to prayer, but the true note of hope is the interfaith couple, a reference to his own parents. His father was a Muslim and his mother a Christian. The couple he refers to are washing their hands, a nod to the fact that his parents worked hard to leave behind some of the more toxic traditions of their faith and nationality. Or it could simply be an acknowledgement of the fact that they would not allow their culture and its restrictions to define them. So why this poem? I've always been fascinated with the ways in which the stories that are told about people and places can come to shape them, but also to restrict and pigeonhole them. Ellums is a poet who has always used his poetry as an investigative tool, a scalpel with which to dissect just what is happening at a particular time in a particular society. This poem showcases his particularly strong talent for imagery and more importantly, his ability to be incredibly incisive, narrowing down to the core of the subject and making his audience not only sympathize, but genuinely care. It is a poem that truly showcases poetry's capacity to affect change. I'd like to point out that this week's poem has covered a range of incredibly complex topics. I put a lot of research in when trying to cover the complexities of Africa's history and then summarize it into a 17 minute episode. I would strongly urge you to check out this week's show notes as every single reference made has been given a footnote, a citation and researched in depth. And it would do far more justice to the subject if you were to do your own in-depth research. So, do you agree with my reading or am I a million miles off? I will point out, as always, that this is my interpretation of the poem. And as such, it's very much up for debate. If you'd like to debate it with me, or if you have a poem you'd like me to read on this podcast, you can get in touch in loads of different places. Send me an email at wordsthatburnpodcast at gmail.com. Find me on Instagram at wordsthatburnpodcast. You can find the show notes, as I said previously, at wordsthatburnpodcast.com. If you've been enjoying this podcast and you'd like to help me out, please consider giving me a review or some kind of feedback wherever you listen. Thank you so much for the feedback I've gotten so far. I really appreciate it when you engage with me. This episode was written and produced by me, Benjamin Colopy. The music for this week's episode was provided by Scott Buckley and is used under Creative Commons license. As always, I really appreciate you spending time with me and hopefully... You'll hear from me again soon.